Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made, hid- made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the Ketamites came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the, Midian, for the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to waste it. So as is typical with the previous chapters we've already covered in this book, the story begins with Israel with the, telling us that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now just like chapter 4, we're not specifically told what evil it was. But the evidence we have in this chapter leads us to believe, leads us to assume that a big part of it was idolatry, was once again idolatry. That sin, their sin, had become so offensive to God that he once again had to discipline them by handing them over to another nation. And in this case, he hands them over to Midian who oppressed and terrorized them for seven years. Now, this enemy, the Midianites, were descendants of Midian, who was a son of Abraham and Keturah. Now, Keturah was the wife that Abraham took after Sarah had died. According to Genesis 25, Midian was sent away to the land of the east, And in Numbers and in Exodus, we see that there's a lot of skirmishes going on between the nation of Israel as they were in the wilderness and also the the Midianites. So there is history there. Verses 2 and 6 through 6 give us the details of how they were oppressed and terrorized by Midian. And right away we see that they were just living in humiliation because they were living as cave dwellers. And when it was time for the harvest, the Midianites would always show up with the Amalekites and the Ketamites and attack them. Now when they came, this army of terrorists destroyed whatever food they planted and take their livestock so that they would starve, so that they would starve to death. We're told that the combined number of forces that Midian led were so many that they would utterly and completely waste, make waste of the land. They laid waste to it. Now these first five verses of this chapter is also a good illustration of the life of a Christian who has turned their back on God and is choosing to live in sin. Because this is what was happening with Israel during this time. They had turned their back on God. And what I mean by that is when a Christian succumbs to the temptations, to their temptations and sins, they're doing what is evil 
in the sight of the Lord. When you sin, no matter how you sugarcoat it, no matter how you try to justify it, it's still evil. God still sees it that way, and he still hates it. In fact, we're told in Proverbs 6, in chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, that, he had, that there were seven that he specifically hates. There it says, six things the Lord hates. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. However, although he hates sin, he hates the fact that you sin, he still loves you. He still cares about you and will forgive you no matter how bad you've blown it. 1 John, 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's love. Although we may live our entire lives completely offending him and doing wrong and doing what, was, what is evil in his eyes, he still loves us. He loves us enough that he sent his son to die for us. Now, another way, this is similar, but the Israelites said is similar to, the, to a Christian walking away, is that when a believer refuses to re- repent for their sins, many times God will step aside to allow that person to experience the suffering that will eventually happen. God knows what's in each and every one of your hearts. And He knows who's in control of it. He knows if something else has all your love and attention or if it's Him. So because He'd rather have all of it than just part of it, what he'll do is just, you know what, I'm not going to share myself with somebody else that has a piece of your heart. And he'll just step aside. He'll move out of the way until you're ready to give it all to him. He does this sometimes to show you how unsatisfying that sin is or how unsatisfying that idol is. And that nothing will ever compare to the love, joy, and peace that He alone can offer you. As Christians, we sometimes look at the world and think how nice the grass looks on the other side. We look at our friends or we look at the people. I mean, I I was at the store yesterday and I saw bunch of people dressed up ready to party on a, sat- on a Saturday night for Halloween and it does even for myself it crosses my mind like oh man it'd be nice to to go to a club and just you know um, party it up and dress up and you know it, it, it does and that's just an example but sometimes we, we do we see what's going on in the world and we're like man it's so much nicer there and grass is green and look they're having so much fun and and that side of the, the grass over there is just so much greener. Now, some will actually snap out of it. Like I, 
that's what happened to me last night. I saw that and I just quickly, I was like, oh no, I, that's, that's, that's not the life I want to live anymore. You know, it's, I remember those days and they weren't good. Now others will try to live on both sides of the, of the fence. You know, they, they try to live on the side where they're, they're full on Christians or they're fully in the world and they have one foot in, one foot out. And they can't make up their minds. Unfortunately, though, many others will purposely jump the fence and roam around and want to be in this. And, and sooner, sooner or later, they find out that the reason it looks so good, so much greener on the other side, was because it was artificial grass. It wasn't real. It was fake. Fake grass. We look at our side, and, and yeah, there are potholes, and there may be some weeds there, there might be some, but we have the hope knowing that one day, God will make everything new. God will just be there, and He will come for us, and we're going to have a new home, and everything will just be beautiful. And again, nothing, is gonna, nothing this world had to offer will ever compare to what we're going to experience one day. Now also, when a Christian is living in sin, they will have a difficult time being honest and open about their faith. If you're a true born-again Christian, you will never live comfortably in the world, no matter how hard you try. I'm reminded of the saying, some people are real, some people are good, some people are fake, and some people are real good at being fake. You can party it up on a Friday and Saturday night. You can party, you can go and, and you know, fill your body up with drugs and, and watch, you know, these adult movies or whatever. You can satisfy your flesh all you want and act like you don't know God. But if you're a Christian, if you've really, truly, at one time have given your life over to God, you've surrendered to Jesus, or you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God knows you. God, there's a connection there that never goes away. He knows you because he's your you're his child. His spirit living in you is there permanently. And even though it may not be burning bright, even though it's not a flaming torch inside of you, and it's not as bright as it used to, His dim light, that dim light that's still in you, will still convict you of sin. And if there isn't, if you don't feel bad about any of your behavior, if there is no conviction there, then maybe you should question if you were really ever born again. I know for myself, although I was living in sin and walked away for a good 10 years, I never felt good about what I was doing, my sinful behaviors. And I tried as, as hard as I can, I tried to suppress it with a lot of drinking and a lot of ignoring and just a lot of fighting, but it was there. 
And really, I wasn't, I was fighting against God. I was fighting against what God was trying to tell me. I wasn't fighting against my family or I wasn't fighting against, you know, those that cared about me. I was fighting God. And I was fighting Him telling me, Him trying to slap some sense into me, that conviction. Now listen to what Peter said in his first letter. And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. Another thing we see here is that when a believer uh, turns away from God, and he walks away from God, the enemy will come. The enemy will come and attack, rob, and destroy the fruit that was planted in them and leave them spiritually starving. Again, personally, I sometimes wonder how my life would have been like, how my life would have ended up had I never walked away from the Lord back in 2001. I wonder sometimes how, the, how much the Lord could have used me. And maybe my life, maybe I would have been what I'm doing now 10 years ago, maybe. I don't know. I mean, you, all these thoughts just go through your head and you're like, and it, it makes, it, it, sometimes it makes me feel bad. Like, man, I, I'm sorry, Lord. Again, I'm, Wow, you could have used me greatly. I, you know, again, I probably would have met Isaac 10 years ago. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's, I, I wonder how, again, my life would have been like, but I don't dwell on it too much because I also see how I needed those experiences to get me where I'm at. I needed, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. I wouldn't be able to explain to you the suffering, the trials, the me knowing what addiction is like, me, you know, telling you that I understand what it's like to, to fight against your wife or, you know, fight your family. And I had to go through all that. So that's why I don't, I don't think about that too much. But I, you know, I, I do believe that when I did, when I walked away, I allowed the devil to steal the work he had been doing in my life from that point, um, from the point I gave my life to him, from my, the point I gave my life to the Lord. You see, there was so much going on. We were serving the church, and, and I was on fire. And I walked away, and the devil came and just came and robbed and stole everything. But as I said, you know, I don't, I think about it, but I don't dwell on it because it just, I start to feel really bad, and, and then again, the devil tries to play tricks on my mind, and I don't allow him to. I won't allow him to. Now, in the end, God will hold us all accountable for what we did and what we didn't do. And honestly, for me, I'm okay with that because I know he has me where he wants me. He has me here because he wants me to be here, and I'm my 
I'm happy to do it. Well, I tell you this so that you will learn from my mistake and just keep walking with the Lord. So let's keep reading here. Let's, let's keep going with the reading. Verse 6. Judges chapter 6, verse 6. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave, your, and gave you their land. I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites, whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. Here we see once again how the people fail to learn from their past mistakes and fail right into that cycle of misery that previous generations went through. We're told that after seven years of living under the oppressive hand of the Midianites, the Israelites finally went out, finally cried out to the Lord. Now their bondage and oppression had become so severe that it caused them to turn back to God and plead for help. And what, we, what we'll see through this, throughout this entire story, because I believe it, the story of Gideon goes all the way up to chapter 8. But what we'll, what we'll see here in this entire story is, is an example of God's grace and mercy towards his chosen people. You see, it could have been worse had God simply abandoned them. Had God simply been like, you know what, you guys are a mess. You guys keep messing up and I'm done with you. I'm leaving. It would have been worse for them. But again, what we see here is God's continued loving grace towards them. God hears their cry and sends a prophet to deliver his response. This unnamed messenger isn't the judge we'll be reading about in a bit. He first had to prepare the people by sending this prophet before they could receive and respond to the work of the judge. So he sent this, this prophet so that they'll be able to more fully and more easily and more openly accept this new judge that was going to come, come along. Now there are four parts to this message. Part one is a traditional prophetic introduction. Part two is a reminder of how he rescued them from Egypt, including their past oppressors, and how he had given them the land that they were standing on. And part three, he reminds them of who he is and his command against idolatry. And part four was his rebuke for not obeying him. Now, I just want to briefly mention two things that we can apply from, from this passage in verses 6 through 10. If you are suffering from the consequences of your sin, don't ever believe God has abandoned you. The other, the other thing, too, is don't blow off the Christian, or don't blow off that one Christian classmate or that co-worker that God may have brought into your life. I'm talking about the one you find yourself opening up to. The one that is there, you enjoy their company. You enjoy speaking with them and has a way of being honest with you without insulting you. And you're not offended. That one Christian there, you can just be like, hey man, you know, 
going through this or this is happening and and they're just you just there's an enjoyable conversation and you guys know what I'm talking about because I, I know there's people everywhere that you that you Christians that are knowing and then Christians that are just like yeah you know it's I enjoy your I enjoy your company I enjoy talking to you and it's those ones those ones that you enjoy that God has brought into your life to minister to you, to share with you, to pray with you. Listen to them. The Lord may want to give you a word of wisdom through them. So don't discount them, don't ignore them, don't, don't blow them off. God may use that person to speak directly to you. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abirzerite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine vat in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that your fathers, that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in strength. You have, uh, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? He said this to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel. Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. I will strike Median down as if it were one man. When we read about Othniel and Ehud, there weren't too many biographical details as to how or why God had chosen, it, or chosen them. The only thing we're told was that God raised them up to deliver Israel from their oppression. Here we're provided with the details on the process on which the Lord commissions this particular deliverer. The account begins with the angel, how the angel of the Lord came and sat under an oak tree in the land that belonged to Joash. Now more than likely, this angel of the Lord was the same one mentioned in the beginning of chapter 2. Now, I do agree with some of the scholars who have said this angel, this messenger, was none other than Jesus Christ appearing in human form before his birth. And if you remember back then, uh, the term that theologians use is a Christophany, was that this was a Christophany. Now, there are two strong reasons for this. Firstly, there are various times in the, Bible, in, in the Bible telling us that angels were used to deliver messages from God. But this doesn't seem to be the case here. And secondly, verses 14 and 16 shows us that God himself was speaking. It was God who was speaking to, to Gideon. So while this angel was sitting under this tree, Joash's son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine vat in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now I looked, a, I re, did a little bit of research on threshing wheat, what that entailed, 
And rather than just give you a full-on description about it, I'll just simply say that this, when someone threshed wheat, it had to be done in, open, in an open space, typically on a hilltop, so that the breeze can blow away the shaft. But now, he had to do it in, in a different location. And what he hoped to accomplish is he was just threshing this wheat in this difficult place was that he'll have, he'd have enough grain. He'll, ha he'll thresh enough to grain just a, at least a meal or two. And this speaks of the desperation of the people at that time. The people that were under the oppression of the Midianite raiders. So as Gideon is working hard in a very difficult environment, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This angel saying this to him would be like me going up to, let's say, a homeless person and saying, Hello, Mr. or Mrs. Future President. It just was out of nowhere. I mean, it's no way would that person or have Gideon ever thought that he was going to be a mighty warrior. The angel was telling him what he was one day going to become. Now, God knows what you and I are meant to be, what we're meant to become. We just need to have the faith to believe it, to believe him when he reveals it to us. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time, so we should walk in them. Also notice how and when the Lord appeared to Gideon. He was at his rock bottom. And then when it seemed like there was nothing good in life to look forward to, that's when God appeared. And it's like those moments in our own lives when we're able to see and hear God more clearly. It's when we've lost everything that's important to us, when we have nothing else to look forward to, when all our idols, everything that we put above God has, is now either threatening us or has abandoned us. And that's when God appears, when we're at our lowest. That's when we're able to hear him more. It shouldn't, it shouldn't necessarily, it shouldn't be the case. But for many, for many people, and again, I speak as, you know, personally, as in, as, and I attest to it that, yeah, you know, that's when I heard the Lord more clearly, when, we are at ro when we're at our rock bottom. And notice also he appeared to Gideon while he was working. He wasn't in bed with the shades pulled in, completely depressed, not wanting to eat or do anything and just feeling sorry for himself and feeling sorry for the nation. He showed up while he was hard at work, while he was still taking care of his responsibilities. The Lord loves those who work hard. While the devil seeks out the lazy and the idle. I understand that, that some people aren't able to work, but we all have responsibilities. Everybody has responsibilities. So when you're taking care of them, he knows. And he will show up. 
and speak to you during those times. He may do that. You never know. But I know that if you're not doing anything, and there are examples of that, the devil loves idle hands. He seeks those out who just won't do anything, the lazy and the idle. Gideon must have known who he was speaking with or that he was speaking with someone special because of the way he responded back. This was probably something that was just constantly in his mind. It was something that was just, he couldn't get out of his head. It may have been in his prayers. It may have been just in the tip of his tongue. It may have just been something that he just was going over and over and over in his head, bothering him so much. If God is with us, why is this happening to us? Why is this happening to us? Why did so many great things, why did he do so many great things in the past and now he's not doing them? Why? But where is he now? Where is God when we need him the most? You see, Gideon thought the problem was with God, not with him or with the nation of Israel. In truth, it was Israel who forsook God. God did not forsake Israel. Now, we shouldn't be so hard on, it, on Gideon, though, because honestly, how many times have we complained to God in the same way? How many times have you complained to God about a bad situation you were in? Not because he put you there, but because you put yourself there. When our sins catch up to us, and, and we're suffering because of it, we often blame God for the consequences of those sins. We have unprotected relationships and then someone gets pregnant and how often do we say, God, this is your fault? Or we go out gambling and next thing you know, we're spending, we're spending all your mortgage money, your money for bills, the money that's supposed to be going to food. And then we blame God. And for everybody it's different, but again, many times we, we do that. We don't see that it was us that caused the problem. Therefore, it's important that you do take responsibility for your actions. It's much easier for God to shape a soft heart, a soft and humble heart, than a prideful heart that's made out of rock. When, when your heart is just hard and it's unshapeable and unmovable, God can't do anything with it. He wants that soft heart, that heart that, that says, you know what, yes, I, I messed up, I screwed up. And with that, He can do so many things. With that kind of heart, he can, he can completely change you and transform you and shape you into the person that He wants you to be. So we see that rather than explaining or defending himself, God commissions Gideon to lead the people with the skills that he naturally learned and was divinely given. Then, by asking, am I not sending you God presents Gideon with all the authority he will need for the task. 
this fearful and cynical farmer is hereby informed that God has indeed heard the people, the people's cry of pain, and has personally chosen him to solve the problem. In verse 15, we see the reasons why Gideon initially objected to God's call to lead. Out of the entire tribe of Manasseh, his family was the weakest, meaning they had no social power or influence. So why would anyone hear him out? Why would anyone listen to him? His family was on the bottom of the totem pole. He wasn't anyone important. His family wasn't anyone important. And secondly, he was the youngest one in his family. He was the baby brother. And what this meant that not only was his family in the bottom of the totem pole and in all the 12 tribes, but he himself, being the youngest one, was in the bottom of the bottom. He didn't think it, he didn't think it was anybody. He thought he was a nobody. Gideon doesn't realize that the Lord's plans for a person go beyond the social structures of any human society. When he wants to use this person, a person to do his work, he enables them, even if they don't have any experience, even if they've never done anything in their entire life. Well, in response to, to his objection, the Lord offers two words of encouragement. First, he tells Gideon, I will be with you. Meaning, the, again, his, the presence of the maker of this universe, the maker of, of, of this entire world, will be with him the entire way, and then predicts an easy victory by telling him that he will fight the Midianites as if, fight, as, if were, as if he were fighting one person. You see, it was still going to be challenging. It was still going to be difficult, but it wasn't going to be impossible. One of the best assurances we've been given as Christians is that God will be with us and that Christ, that in Christ, our victory is guaranteed if we remain faithful. You see, from the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God's Spirit made His home in you, and an everlasting bond was created between you and Him. Paul writes about this bond in Romans 8, 38 and 39. There he says, For I am persuaded that, that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created things will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Christ, our victory is guaranteed if we just keep our eyes fixated upon Him during the best of times and during the worst of times. I want to read to you something from 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Now we have these treasures in jars of clays, in, jars, in, in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may form, may be, for, may be from God and not from us. We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus on our, in our body 
so that our life so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body for we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus so that Jesus life may be revealed in our mortal flesh so death works in us but life in you and since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with him in keeping with what is written I believe therefore I spoke we also believe and therefore speak we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise will also will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you indeed everything is for your benefit so that the grace extended through through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory therefore we do not give up even w- even though our outer person is being destroyed our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory so we do not focus on what is seen but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal our victory is already declared our victory is already done it's already been completed all we have to do is just remain in him all we have to do is just hold on to him I want to read this last section here. This last section for this this morning. Verse 17. Then he said to him, If I had found favor in your sight, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under, an oak, under, under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat with the unleavened bread, put it on the stone and pour the broth on it. And he did so. The angel of the Lord extended the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat of the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon realized that he was the that he was the angel of the Lord and said, Oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord's face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not be afraid, for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it Yahweh Shalom, that is in Ophrah of the Israelites until today. So after having received God's promise of his presence and victory, Gideon goes on the little offensive. He, he, now he pushes back against God and demands for a sign. Gideon does this because he has two main concerns. He still needs confirmation of the Lord's favor upon him. And he needs confirmation that the Lord will be with him and that he will receive the strength to defeat, to defeat the Midianites. Again, this reflects Gideon's lack of self-confidence, his doubt in himself, or his doubt in God that he has what it takes, as well as his lack of confidence in God to use a nobody like him. Now, I don't necessarily believe there's anything wrong with asking God for a sign to show you, to help you make a decision. 
However, if you're asking for a sign to show you if he loves you, if he cares about you, then you probably don't know him very well. You see, the proof of God's love is written in Romans 5.8. But God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, whenever the devil tries to lie to you and tell you that he doesn't, that God doesn't love you, remember those words. We then see in verses 18 through 19, Gideon not only demands a sign, but also dictates the nature of that sign. He essentially tells the divine visitor, don't move, stay here, don't, don't go anywhere. Uh, I'm going to come back with a special gift for you. And then we see this visitor agreeing to what he was saying. So Gideon goes home and he makes a full course meal. I'm thinking menudo in my head. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, something, you know, caldo, something, something good, you know, and gives it to him under this oak tree. Now, instead of this angel eating it, he gives Gideon some instructions on what to do with it. And what we see after giving those instructions, after following those instructions, the angel touched the stone with the staff and fire came up from the rock and consumed the food. Imagine that scene, that just fire coming up from a rock and just consuming this meat and the bread. In early biblical period, a sacrifice that was consumed by holy fire signified that the worshiper had found favor in God's sight. One commentator also noted, here was a sign that the Midianites should be destroyed without man's labor. And right after he did that, right after this happened, this person that is as real as me and you standing here in front of each other, he just disappeared in front of Gideon's sight. And it was at that moment that everything hit Gideon like a ton of bricks. And he just completely begins, begins to freak out. Oh my goodness. I just saw the angel of the Lord face to face. I'm going to die. I just saw something holy and magnificent and amazing. And, and I'm going to die. I mean, he starts really freaking out. Now, I believe that his reaction is definitely further evidence that this was indeed a Christophany. This was indeed Christ appearing in human form. You see, in Gideon's eyes, his visitor was simply was just a man with human characteristics. But the thing about it is that he also knew there was something special about him. However, he suddenly realized that he had seen something divine face to face. Now, this probably wasn't the sign he wanted or expected, but nonetheless, it was convincing him confirmation of everything the Lord had told him. Well, recognizing that Gideon was freaked out, the Lord reassures him. He just calms him down and says, hey, you're not going to die. You're going to be okay. And tells him and calms him down. And upon doing so, it appears that Gideon is encouraged and starts to interpret this encounter with God positively. This encounter with the Lord is a mark of his acceptance with God and can now move forward 
with the mission to which he has been called. When we see how he demonstrates his acceptance to his face-to-face encounter by being, by be, he, he accepts it and he says, okay, this was a great moment. This was a holy moment. I want to honor the Lord. And he builds an, an altar as an, as an act of worship. Now the altar, the name, he named the altar, the Lord is peace. Because from that day forward, he was no longer terrified of God and was now ready to go to war for him. Spurgeon said this, When Gideon is fully at peace, what does he begin to do for God? If God loves you, he will use you either for suffering or service. And if he has given you peace, you must now prepare for war. Will you think me odd if I say that the Lord came to give us peace, that he might send us to war? Many times God will call people to do something that logically would be considered crazy or extremely dangerous. But the one thing the Lord has shown me through the stories in the Bible, through the biographies of many great men, church leaders, and in my life personally, is that when God confirms something to you, He also gives you the courage, the strength, and the peace to go out and do it. Yes, you may have doubts, and you may, it may take some time for you to completely be convinced. But when you are, when he completely convinces you, the choice is yours on how you're going to respond. You can either do nothing, like the steward who did nothing with the talent his master had given him, and instead buried it. And that story is told in Matthew chapter 24. You can reject God's calling, just like the young man who had more important things to take care of and to follow Jesus. And his story is told in Mark chapter 10. Or you can accept it and live the rest of your life knowing that you're fulfilling God's call, what God has called you to do. The choice is yours. But keep in mind that the Bible clearly says that God will hold you accountable. God will hold you, each and one of you, each and one of us accountable for what we did and what we didn't do. If you answer him, keep in mind that it's not going to be easy and there will be much opposition against you. However, know that when the Lord is with you, he will be able, you will be able to fight a million enemies, a million enemy forces as though you were only fighting one. That's the courage you should have. That's the strength he gives you. You're not fighting, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting, God is fighting with you. You're not fighting alone. Now I'll end with these words found in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 to 31, where he says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the weary and strengthens, and strengthens the powerless. Youths may faint and grow weary, and young men, may stumble, young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk 
and not faint. Now, some of you may be hearing this message and, be, and, and, and hear that call and are hearing that call of the Lord. And He may not be calling you to go and start a missions, to go out to a third world country and be a missionary. He may not be calling you to, to be a pastor or, or to go out and start a, a soup kitchen or a food pantry. But right now He may be calling you to just simply believe in His Son. To simply just surrender your life to Him. Now again, the choice is yours. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to reject it? Are you going to ignore it? Or are you going to listen? But if you do listen, your life is going to change. If you do decide to surrender and give your life over to Him, your life is going to change forever. You will not be the same person. He transforms you from within. And if that's you, if you're listening, and if you're wa- or you're watching, and and that's what He's called you to do, and you're ready, and now you're just you want to heed God's calling. When we close here, I'm going to lead you in a, in a prayer to do that, to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So, let's close the word of prayer. Lord God, thank you again for this example you've given us for these 20, first 24 verses that you've provided for us, Lord. Thank you for these messengers, this prophet and this angel who gives us an example for us that just as you didn't abandon Israel, you, you have not abandoned us, Lord. You will never abandon us. Our messenger you've sent for us was your son, is your son. And we thank you that you've that you sent him to die for us. We thank you for giving us everlasting life through him. And that eventually in time the victory is ours. Although we may suffer now and for a bit, and we may suffer temporarily. That suffering isn't forever. And so if you've never accepted Jesus and, and now you want to surrender your life to him and you want to answer God's call to walk with him, wherever you are, just pray this. Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe He is God. I accept your forgiveness. I accept your Son. So now fill me with your Spirit so that I may walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Lord, thank you again for everyone here. I ask that you bless them throughout this entire week. Use them wherever they're at, Lord. May we walk boldly and unashamedly for you. And may we just continue in the calling that you've given us, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.